Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, my OOB tears. And if you haven't already heard, on November 3rd, the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast officially turned one year old. Did you hear that, my friends? One whole year old. Can you believe it? Cue the confetti. (laughs) Many, many, many thanks to all of you for journeying alongside me in God's Word for 27 episodes of OOBD now. Studies in Genesis, Job, Advent, and Holy Week. We have already covered quite a range of territory on these thin, crinkly pages for sure, my friends, with so very much more to come. Saying thank you definitely doesn't seem like enough, but I truly do appreciate every single one of you who continue to show up to study alongside me episode after episode. And to those of you who are new to our OOBT studies, welcome. Okay, friends, let's now continue in Abraham's story, which finally, today, includes the birth of his son, Isaac. As I mentioned in previous episodes, while we are preparing ourselves to enter into this study of this episode's chapters, I would ask us to keep this fact in mind. What is only the flip of a few pages for us was actually a 25-year wait for Abraham and Sarah. God made a promise to Abraham at 75 years old, but Abraham didn't become the father of Isaac until he was 100 and Sarah was 90. I promise there will be more talk about having faith in the waiting seasons of life. How could there not be? Oh, friends. Let's just get right into it, shall we? But before I start our readings today, I want to give this disclaimer. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip over reading aloud some of the passages to allow for a more thorough discussion of the verses we do take a deep dive into. Of course, this is by no means suggesting these other passages and chapters aren't important. And as always, I have so much more to share about the scriptures I am digging into. Well, you get what I'm trying to say, right? (laughs) However, with all that in mind, I would encourage all of us to press pause right now and go read or listen to the entirety of Genesis chapters 21 through 24 before we move forward in our studies. As a frame of reference, go ahead, press pause now. I promise I will wait right here for your return. (laughs) Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 21 in the New Living Translation begins. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly as he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would, and Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast in celebration of the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, Do not be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is a son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation 
of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food in a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself, about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer and settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. Okay, as we start to unpack all we have read here in chapter 21, let's first consider this perspective about married love and the changes over the course of time from Beth Moore in the Patriarch Study. As Jason and I have been together for 31 years and married for 28, I was intrigued to think about her perspective of what would have been happening on the home front, so to speak, prior to Isaac's conception, and also her thoughts about Sarah's pregnancy and then birth of Isaac at 90 years old. Wow, 90. Beth begins in the week three, day two section titled Laughing Out Loud by saying, Nothing on earth rivals the ecstasy of experiencing a heavenly promise fulfilled. God's appointment of time in between the word of promise and its fulfillment can tempt us to ridiculous thoughts like, I'm going to fool around and die before God remembers to bring this to pass. And as if waiting for God's time isn't hard enough, God fills the waiting with tests until the time fully comes and the breakthrough erupts. That's found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Sarah knew the feeling. Her wait, like ours, was about what God wanted to birth and maybe even what God wanted to kill, as in all the other options. When the three visitors stopped near the great trees of Mamre for a divine appointment with Abram, the Lord announced that he returned to them at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Then, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, it reads, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And that was a King James Version. Considering both the phrases beginning with the word as in this verse, we can conclude from these two phrases that the Lord will do what he says, and he will keep his promises. Nothing can be more gracious of God than to visit his child with his presence. The divine visit referenced in Genesis chapter 21 verse 1 could relate to either the time of supernatural conception between Abraham and Sarah or the miracle of the child's birth. Abraham was undoubtedly the biological father of Isaac, who was born out of a loving physical union that took place between Abraham and his elderly wife. God's visitation lent the supernatural power to conceive and deliver. Beth continues by saying, Valentine's Day is just around the corner as I write. I won't kid you. I love love. Think about this for a moment. We tend to consider the best love stories in terms of how they began, romantically, adventurously, against all odds. Our society has proved we have no trouble beginning love. However, we are tragically deficient on enduring love and ending love well at the close of a lifetime. If you'll allow me room for a little extra boldness, God's plan necessitated Abraham and Sarah fanning those flames of passion again. We don't know that they didn't nearly laugh their heads off at the thought of God's marvelous plan. Isaac's name could encompass endless motivations for laughter. Loving couples who've been together a long time enjoy priceless moments of private joking, not the least of which concern physical intimacy. For all we know, Abraham and Sarah had pet names for each other and laughed all the way to their graves over the child God enabled them to conceive in their senior years. 
I can picture Abraham pretending to flex his muscles for Sarah while the skin hung down unenthusiastically from his upper arm. Then I can picture Sarah laughing until she cried or had a coughing fit. Ways we uniquely communicate with one another are God-blessed dimensions of marriage. Marriage is often difficult, and sharing tender moments like these eases the difficult and mundane seasons with bouts of delight. Do you know a senior adult couple who still seem to be in love? Describe something about them that makes you smile, such as maybe their constant teasing banter or their enjoyment of time with one another. With new romance infused late in their relationship, picture Abraham and Sarah somewhat like the couple you mentioned. We'll miss a tremendous blessing if we spiritualize the human aspect out of their story. Genesis chapter 21 verse 2 states, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Any of us who've had a child knows good and well that plenty happens between conception and delivery. Had God inspired Moses' wife to write Genesis instead of Moses, we might have been privy to significantly greater detail here. This we know, God visited Sarah and enabled her to become pregnant and bear a child. We have no scripture to support that she and Abraham knew they'd had a visitation and that they were suddenly expecting a baby. In all likelihood, time had to tell. So go with me here, friends, because the woman in me finds this part fascinating. Just think, Sarah didn't have a monthly cycle to give her early signs that she was pregnant. How do we know? Because Genesis chapter 18 verse 11 tells us, Sarah was long past the age of having children. That's a nice, biblically correct way of saying that Sarah had already gone through menopause. I'm blessed to know that she never killed anyone. However, Hagar might say that Sarah didn't get to that point without considerable mood swings. <laughs> With that in mind, how do you think Sarah finally figured out that God had fulfilled his promise and she was expecting Isaac? Maybe a growing tummy, movements, kicks, possibly morning sickness? There really are so many pregnancy symptoms as options here, right? I'd love to join you and get into the rich kind of discussion that women like to have here. We should be scholarly in our study of God's Word, but we should also enjoy meditating on Scripture from our gender perspective. The combination makes the process of studying the Bible all the more real and applicable. We probably answered the previous question with several of the same assumptions. Sarah was looking for the pregnancy, so she very likely jumped to accurate conclusions at the first sign. On the first morning or two she felt nauseated, she might have assumed it was Hagar's bad cooking. I knew she was trying to poison me, right? (laughs) But after a while, she would have figured out that she had one of our least favorite symptoms of pregnancy, morning sickness. Weeks later, she might have lain flat on her back to see if her tummy was changing. Can you imagine the care Sarah took of herself once she realized she was expecting? Even though she had a God-given guarantee that she'd carry the baby to term and deliver a healthy bundle of boy, surely Sarah made some of the same careful adjustments that many of us did with our first babies. We have no way of knowing for certain, but it's possible Sarah protected herself and remained under great care during the first months of pregnancy, or while she was waiting to develop the nerve to tell her friends. I never valued my own life more than when I was expecting my babies. In my thinking, the cargo I carried made me valuable. After being obsessively careful the first several months, the second half of a normal pregnancy isn't as worrisome in at least one respect. You can feel the baby's activity inside of you. Imagine. About midway through Sarah's pregnancy, she began to feel Isaac kick. At first, she wasn't sure. The feeling was like the flutter of butterfly wings or tiny bubble popping. But after another month or two, her abdomen heaved with a swift kick of a lively baby boy practicing sports. Then, Sarah bore a son. Genesis 21, verse 2. 
Much like many of us, she may have been expecting the baby to arrive for weeks, but several false alarms taught her she'd have to wait until the pains took a definitive pattern. Historical records of practicing midwives reach far into history. We can accurately imagine at least one other woman right beside Sarah, coaching her through labor and delivery. Harder for us to imagine a 100-year-old man pacing back and forth, kicking up the dust as a minute stretched into hours. Then there was Isaac. Red face tightened into an angry knot and cords still attached, reminding Sarah that all babies are miracles. Her gray hair lay soaked with sweat while tears ran like tiny rivers through the crow's feet around her eyes. Those aging eyes had witnessed volumes of life, but never a more precious moment than this. Slippery, squirming, screaming. Son of Abraham, child of promise. Genesis chapter 21 verse 6 says it perfectly. God has brought me laughter. Yes, with a capital L. Suddenly the wait was worthwhile. Isn't that how it goes? I'm amused at the lack of mention of Sarah's old age in the text. Abraham's alone is mentioned, and twice, in fact, but who's counting? After all, who could keep from admiring Sarah as she labored courageously and brought forth a son, nursing him like a 20-year-old mother might do? Abraham was beside himself. He believed God, so he knew that he would have a son. But for the life of him, Abraham didn't know how he'd feel. Words are assigned to the smaller things, after all. Bigger matters are too sacred. You can't describe them. If you're wise, you just sit a spell and soak your weary, wandering feet in them. If Isaac's birth says anything at all, surely it says that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Among thousands of other things, God can perform miracles and marriages long past their prime. He can give offspring, using doctors, physically, by adoption, spiritual children, whatever the means, to the barren. What may be a little more unsettling is the thought that both marriage and birth miracles could happen to the same couple. That's what happened with our Abraham and Sarah. Moving forward a couple of verses that actually represent several years later in the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael, we read this perspective offered in the Patriarch Study Week 3, Day 3, titled God Heard, in which Beth begins. I'd like to point out that the opening scene in today's scriptures happened several years after Isaac's birth, but I know my gender well enough to know that this kind of emotional swing we're about to study can also happen in the same day or the same hour. Ishmael and Hagar were making fun of Isaac, and this was the cause of Sarah's drastic change in temperament. Have you ever noticed how family celebrations filled with high expectations have an uncanny way of bringing out less than desirable family dynamics? I think we are safe to say that by the end of this merry day, no one had had a good time. Ishmael figured he'd rather be in the spotlight for bad behavior than be forced out of it altogether. Picturing a young teenage boy teasing and picking on his three-year-old half-brother is no reach, Something stronger, however, is implied in this scene. Ishmael suddenly posed a threat Sarah could not tolerate. Our scripture passages today contain very little description concerning Isaac. We only know that he's old enough to have just been weaned, customarily up to three according to ancient practices. I can't think of a more lovable age. Nothing has a potential to be more delightful or more frightful than a three- or four-year-old. Most of us have been around children at this age through family or friends. If we were briefly to describe a few things about a typically precocious little boy of three, we might use words like silly, loves to laugh, play, and explore. If Isaac ever really lived up to his name, surely he did at this age. Picture Isaac as delightful and unpredictable as any other three-year-old. He was his mother's only child in the apple of her eye. Sketch a half-brother into the scene, picking on Isaac and making fun of him at his own party. It's a wonder Ishmael didn't get smacked in the head with Isaac's new sippy cup. Any of us might be angry in a similar situation involving our own children, 
But when Sarah rose to the occasion, she went over the top. In my opinion, a feast of celebration on weaning day has a mother at a decided disadvantage. That kind of timing could send any woman over the edge easily. Once again, Sarah refused to use Hagar's name. Get rid of that slave woman and her son. Genesis chapter 21, verse 10. We can only imagine Abraham's heartache. What we may be tempted to call folly, Abraham called son. Surely Ishmael bore the image of his father in this expression or that habit. How Sarah must have hated the reminders. Worse yet, the arrangement had been her idea. For better or for worse, Ishmael was Abraham's flesh and blood, and the old man grieved the threat spit from the mouth of bitter conflict. I feel for him. Have you ever dearly loved two people who could not abide one another? Sarah was Abraham's wife and the matriarch of the promised line, but Ishmael was his son. Abraham knew if Ishmael left, part of his heart would leave with him. God may not have approved of Sarah's severity, but he allowed her plan because, though neither Hagar nor Ishmael knew, it would put them on the road to his greater plan. The sovereignty of God will remain a consistent silver thread in the fabric of Genesis, weaving in and out of sight like stitches in a hem. If we're willing, it will be our comfort. If we're not, it will become our nagging question. Trusting that God knows all things and that He works out circumstances for our good can be an emotional lifesaver. See Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I love the New International Version wording of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Ours is a God who works out everything. Unless your situation or mine is an exception to everything, God can handle it and work it out within the context of His plan. Yet even if someone has treated us harshly as Sarah treated Hagar and Ishmael, the New International Commentary suggests, Abraham loses property but gains a nation. Hagar and Ishmael could not have seen past the immediate horror of the prospect into the promise fulfilled. In His infinite mercy, God scheduled a visit to remind them personally. But first, Genesis 21 verse 14 won't be the last time we'll see the phrase early the next morning in reference to the timing of Abraham's actions. The early hour suggests prompt obedience, and it may also suggest an inability to sleep. Surely every time Abraham closed his eyes, he pictured Hagar and Ishmael out in the desert, exposed to harsh elements and thieves on the lookout for defenseless travelers. Imagine the old man's brokenness as he gave Hagar the food and water, set them on her shoulders, and sent her off with the boy. He would never see them again. Do you think he watched them as long as he could as they disappeared into the distance? Or do you think Abraham closed himself in the tent because he couldn't bear to watch? She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba, verse 14. The Hebrew verb used for wandered suggests uncertainty, loss of direction, and even hopelessness. Let's try to relate in modern terms. Imagine you are a single mother. You've been thrown out of the only home you know in a remote town in Arizona, and you have no hope of returning. You are given transportation, but you only have enough gas to last a few hours. You have no map. You've driven and gotten nowhere, and you're almost out of gas. Reality creeps up on you with a wave of nausea. You are lost with no civilization in sight. The sun bakes the cracked ground and the water bottle is empty. Your child is terrified and asks what you are going to do. Desperation disintegrates into hopelessness. Take the car away and you can begin to see what Hagar and Ishmael faced. We are not told the number of days they journeyed, but clearly they traveled long enough for Ishmael to reach the brink of death. Once they ran out of water, the desert heat and lack of vegetation hastily dehydrated their weakened bodies. Imagine Hagar trying to keep Ishmael moving as he grew increasingly weak. At his age, he was nearly as big as she, yet he had all the fears and emotions of a child. We might wonder why a teenage boy neared death faster than his mother. Surely the answer is in the iron will of a mother determined to take care of her child. Hagar assumed the obvious. Death was imminent. 
Putting Ishmael under a bush to die seemed strange to us, but her actions were intentional. Most certainly the bush was thorny and she was protecting her son's body from predatory animals, particularly the kind that don't wait until you're dead. I'm sorry to be so graphic, but this was their reality. Consider the Hebrew verb used in the phrase, she put the boy. When used with a human being as its object, the verb almost always refers to lowering a dead body into its grave or the lowering of a person into what will presumably be his grave. Then comes a part of the story I find almost too painful to picture. After Hagar tucked the weakened body of her son under the bush and kissed his fevered face, she stayed close enough for Ishmael to know she was near, but far enough away to hide her eyes. In her helpless state, whether or not to watch her son die was a solitary choice she had left to make. Meditate on a more literal translation of verse 16, offered by the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. Then she went and sat down by herself, opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the child die. Sitting down opposite him, she started to sob. The words were spoken as a prayer. Note the description in the previous translation, by herself. Desert or no desert, nothing is more isolating than grief. No one loved Ishmael like Hagar did. She alone carried him in her womb, birds him through pain, nursed him to health, and tucked him into bed. She'd met his every need as any mother would, but she could not meet this one. Do not let me see the child die. And she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, verse 17. Did Ishmael cry at the sound of his mother's sobs? Or was he afraid, in pain? God alone knows because God alone heard. Human ears could not have heard the whimpers of a weakened boy, over the wails of his broken mother. God's ears, though, hear groans that words cannot express. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. God heard the sobs as if they were prayers without words. The psalmist eloquently expressed a similar thought. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Psalm 130, verse 1. The divine interruption to Hagar's sob is the angel of God calling to Hagar from heaven, telling her to go to Ishmael, to comfort him. Lift the boy up. O God, that I could, he has no strength and I can no longer carry him. Genesis chapter 21, verse 18. Would God make us a promise without giving us provision to see it fulfilled? Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water in verse 19. Ah, yes. Sometimes God brings a woman to a well, and other times he brings a well to a woman. So she went and filled the skin with water, verse 19. Trembling, don't you imagine, as a flash flood of hope filled her own frail skin. See Hagar in your imagination filling the canteen made of animal skin as fast as she could for fear Ishmael might die before God's promise was fulfilled. Picture her running, water splashing toward the bush where she left him. No need to worry about waste. God himself dug the well. It would not run dry. Now picture Hagar kneeling beside Ishmael, oblivious to the prick of thorns. Imagine her lifting his head, heavy with the nearness of death, as she insists, Ishmael, open your mouth. Her trembling hand tips as much over his face as into his mouth, leaving streams through the dust of his ashen cheeks. So she gave the boy a drink, verse 19. God was their oasis in their desert. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. Perhaps now the earlier terminology doesn't seem so out of place as we're told that Hagar moved about a bow shot away so as to not watch Ishmael die. Even the distance Hagar removed herself to sob over his death whispered Ishmael's destiny. Are we surprised to learn God was with Ishmael as he grew up? We shouldn't be surprised at all. Now let's consider this perspective from the She Reads Truth Bible devotional titled The God Who Sees. Have you ever felt like Hagar? Trapped, desperate for a miracle, desperate for a break, definitely not the one calling the shots, wondering if God sees you. 
Hagar was a servant, and because Sarah was in charge, Hagar one day found herself involuntarily married to Sarah's husband, Abraham, and pregnant with his child. I don't suppose Hagar had elaborate dreams for her humble life as a servant, but surely an unwanted marriage wasn't her first choice. In fact, the Bible tells us that when she learned she was pregnant, she looked on Sarah with contempt. Sarah wasn't particularly fond of Hagar either. See Genesis chapter 16, verses 4 through 6. Even in the Bible, lives are twisty and relationships are deeply flawed. Fourteen years later, Sarah finally bore the child God had promised her. And by the time baby Isaac was weaned, Sarah was ready to eliminate once and for all the threat of Hagar's son to her son's inheritance. Just like that, Hagar and her son Ishmael were cast into the wilderness. Things had gone from good to bad to so bad that Hagar walked the distance of about a bow shot from her dehydrated and starving child because she couldn't bear to watch him die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. Genesis 21, verse 16. Have you been there? Completely out of options, not even sure where you went wrong in the first place. In desperate need of the Lord, but unsure if he even sees you. Perhaps it's hard to look on Hagar's wilderness wanderings with anything but kind pity. Perhaps it's difficult to understand because your own circumstances have never been quite that dire. The truth is, no matter our circumstances, Hagar's desperation for the Lord is exactly where each one of us ought to find ourselves every day. We ought to cry out, Lord, I lift my voice in desperate need of your mercy right now. This day, my only option is you. My life is a wilderness without you. Hagar's situation was rock-bottom awful with nowhere to go but up. But do you see what happened when she cried out? God was right there. He saw her. Even in the driest desert, God saw Hagar. This is the God of the Bible. He never takes his eyes off his people. He never stops seeing them. Whether we've been unjustly knocked down and drug out into the wilderness, or we're waking up into our warm beds with a thirst only he can satisfy, wherever we are, God sees us. He hears our pleas, and he meets our needs. Cry out to him today. Continuing on, the last laugh devotional reading from First Five's Genesis study says this about Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. Genesis 21 records the long-awaited fulfillment of one of God's earliest promises to Abraham, the birth of a son. God is gracious. God is faithful. God is able. What He promises, He will perform. Sometimes God's work in our lives is so amazing, so unbelievable that we can hardly comprehend it or contain it, and it causes us to break out in spontaneous laughter. That is exactly what happened to Abraham and Sarah. God had promised that they would have a son. God kept His word, as He always does and Isaac arrived exactly as God said he would arrive. When Isaac was promised, Abraham was a hundred years old, and Sarah was not only barren, she was way past childbearing age. By all human standards, it was impossible for them to conceive, yet it was not impossible for God. He is all-powerful. Nothing is too difficult for him. God's word is filled with many promises that he has made to us. He promises to comfort us in our trials, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, and he promises peace when we pray, Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. If he has made a promise, you can rest assured he will keep his word. Sometimes we think it is too late for God to work. We think we are too old or we've been praying over a situation too long with no answers, no results. One of the hardest things we face in life is when there seems to be a delay in God's actions. We pray. The answer is delayed. Our situation only gets worse. Time ticks away. We fret and try to fix the situation ourselves. What is wrong when we do this? We are not trusting God. We doubt either God's ability to do what He has promised or God's timing. 
Abraham and Sarah teach us that God is in no hurry to carry out His promises, but He has a set time for their fulfillment. It's been 25 years since God first told Abraham He would have a son. That is a long time to wait. God is not in a hurry to get things done. It is a process. He has set a time for the fulfillment of His promises, and He will fulfill them in His time. Like Abraham, we need to learn to trust God and wait on His timing. Waiting is hard, and very few wait well. We pray and desire the answer immediately. Yet when God doesn't answer right away, we try to work out the answer ourselves. That only complicates things and causes troubles. We need to learn to trust God and trust the process. How well do you wait? The God is Faithful side note from Genesis chapter 21, verses 1-7 through in the Jesus Bible reads, Isaac's birth previews the coming of Jesus. Isaac was born because God is faithful and promised Abraham a son, just as he promised sinners a savior. The birth of Isaac came as a demonstration of God's grace, just as it was demonstrated at the coming of Christ. Abraham and Sarah were quite elderly when Isaac was born, so far beyond the years of childbearing that Sarah laughed at God's plan. Yet God often does the humanly impossible to fulfill His purposes. Jesus, after all, was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Though Abraham and Sarah devised what they thought to be a more practical plan to fulfill God's promise by using Hagar as a surrogate, it was ultimately God's faithfulness, not human effort, which brought forth Isaac. In a similar way, Jesus came to earth because God is faithful and fulfills all of His promises. After Isaac was born, Sarah laughed once again, but this time it was not out of the unbelief and mockery, but out of astonishment and joy. Today, Believers should also be filled with joy and astonishment at the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. Even though we all can't help but share in Abraham and Sarah's laughter and joy at the fulfillment of God's promise to them through the birth of Isaac, I know we all have also experienced just how difficult it is to hold on to our faith in seasons of waiting, however short or long they may be. While we can and should acknowledge that seasons of waiting are preparation by God for the things that come in our lives— We can also fully acknowledge the fact that the long-suffering of waiting seasons is often also heartbreaking on so very many levels. When thinking about some of the waiting seasons in my own life, I'm reminded of a scripture I often had on repeat in my mind. Psalm chapter 27 verse 14 in the NIV reads, Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Truthfully, it also seems fitting to consider this verse right now in our studies as we are about to read from Genesis 22 the very one in which Abraham's faith is tested by God. Genesis chapter 22 in the NLT reads, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire in the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked along together. 
When they arrived at the place where God had told him, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. In an effort to see an overview of what is happening here in Genesis chapter 22, listen into what Tara Lee Cobble of the Bible Recap has to say. Yesterday we saw God fulfilling his 25-year-old promise to Abraham by giving him a son, Isaac. Today we hit a pretty important story in Abraham's life. Today there are some really unique language things happening here that we need to pay attention to. First, we started out with God's call on Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. This is crazy, right? Human sacrifice? That is not the God we know, is it? No, you're right, it isn't. God doesn't delight in human sacrifice. This becomes obvious later, but even here it's hinted at. Abraham is called to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, not to sacrifice him. It's an offer God rejects, fortunately. God also refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son, which we know isn't literally true because of Ishmael, but in terms of the uniqueness of God's covenant with Abraham, it certainly is true. You may remember when God commanded him to be circumcised, Abraham immediately obeyed. We see the same thing happening here. They set out on their journey early the next morning. Some of the toughest assignments in all of Scripture are given to Abraham, and he doesn't seem to hesitate with any of it. First of all, Abraham knows that God is not going to make him kill Isaac, or that if he does, then God will raise him from the dead, which, by the way, is something we have no biblical record of prior to this. According to Hebrews chapter 11, this was a huge faith. It was one that believed in something that had never yet been done. But it's not the size of our faith that makes things happen. It's the plan of God. And God's plan was for Isaac to live, but Abraham to be tested. God knows our hearts, but testing reveals a lot to us about what we truly believe. And Abraham willingly faced the test. Here's where a lot of us may be shocked because most of us have gotten our theology from Renaissance paintings, which I've previously mentioned as being terrible Bible teachers. Most of us picture Isaac as being a young boy when this happened, five or six years old, but most Jewish historians say he was 25 or 30. And even logic would tell us that a small boy can't carry a large amount of wood required for a human sacrifice up the mountain. At the very least, he would have been a teenager. But this also points to the fact that anyone who is strong enough to carry wood up a mountain is strong enough to resist their elderly dad when he tries to kill him. But Isaac didn't resist. And the wood was laid on him, just like Christ. This whole story is pointing us towards something greater. Isaac is a Christ type kind of like Melchizedek. Remember him? But then, as Isaac is on the altar, the angel of the capital L-O-R-D, i.e. God the Son before he was born on earth as Jesus, shows up and puts a stop to things. God provides a substitute. 
God provided the sacrifice, just as Abraham said in chapter 22, verse 8. It reminds me that all my sacrifices to God and for God originated as gifts from God. Nothing I offer God, worship or faith or good works or time or money, none of it finds its origin in me. Abraham declared one of God's names when all this happened. We see this a lot in scripture. People gave names based on what you do. They're a function of your activity. This was how a lot of us got our last names, Smiths and Taylors and Millers, and probably somebody in my lineage made shoes. Anyway, Abraham calls God the Lord who provides, Jehovah Jireh. God's names tell us about God's character and actions. Put a pin in that because we'll come back to it in the future. Verse 14 goes on to say, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. One thing that's interesting here, this mountain in the land of Moriah, where all this took place, most people believe is the same place where Solomon would build the temple, and it's also in this short stretch of mountains where Jesus was crucified. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And it was. God again reiterates his promise to Abraham through Isaac. There would be many descendants and much land. And God says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, this is a prophecy of Jesus who came to save people from among every nation. Interestingly, even people who weren't a part of Abraham's family. Moving on, First Five's Genesis study devotional titled Trusting God in the Hard Places reads, In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God gave Abraham a clear command. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. This son was Isaac, the child in whom all Abraham's hopes and dreams rested. God's next words to Abraham must have shaken him to his core. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Reality for Abraham. Light your son on fire and watch him burn. God asked Abraham to sacrifice the one in whom all God's promises were wrapped. We find these promises in the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-3. through 3. Considering what God was asking of him, Abraham's response is staggering, unimaginable even, to most parents. Abraham didn't ask God for an explanation or remind him of his promises or negotiate a deal. Abraham's response was immediate and unquestioning obedience. How did Abraham choose obedience so quickly? Faith. Our level of faith determines our response to God, especially in the hard places. Abraham resolved in his heart long before that day to trust God. He had a rich history with God a deeply personal relationship where God spoke to him and he spoke to God. So when God spoke that day, Abraham did what he had learned to do, trust God to honor his word. God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. Abraham needed a son for that promise to be fulfilled and knew Isaac was the fulfillment of that covenant. Because of God's faithfulness to Abraham in the past, Abraham trusted God would provide another way for his covenant to be fulfilled. And God most certainly did. In verse 14, Abraham looked up and saw a ram in the thicket. God had provided a ram to die in Isaac's place. Because of Abraham's years of walking with God and experiencing God's faithfulness, he knew two things about his God. God honors his word, and God's way is always good. These two truths, rooted in Abraham's heart, enabled him to trust God in that hard place, even when it made no sense. Now listen to this perspective from the She Reads Truths Genesis study in a section titled, Isaac Offered Up. Claire Gibson says, I really didn't want to be assigned this passage. I've been a Christian most of my life, and still, when I read this passage about Abraham and Isaac walking up the mountain, I simply want to throw my Bible across a room. Why in the world would God ask Abraham to do this? There are a host of things that God asks his people to do, things that, without faith and understanding of context, really seem wild. Earlier in Genesis, God asked Abraham to circumcise every man in his household, even his servants. Today, 
Christians are asked to live in obedience to a lot of biblical commands, which make no sense to the world in its culture today. We're asked to not have sex outside of marriage. We're asked to think of others as better than ourselves. We're asked to go out of our way and give to and love others, even our enemies. These commands might seem obvious if you've been in church for a long time, but outside the lens of faith, they really make no sense at all. Only God can give us the strength and faith needed to obey Him. And so, I'm left to believe that God must have given Abraham the strength and faith to obey even this, the seemingly insane command. Why would God have Abraham sacrifice his child, who he and Sarah had waited and longed for throughout the course of their lives? Why this child of the promise? If you remember Genesis chapter 21, you'll recall that Abraham had just sent his other child, Ishmael, away. So now if he were to go through with the sacrifice of Isaac, he would have no children at all. But Abraham trusted God. He trusted that God was good. Abraham had learned that obedience to God brings greater blessing than pain. So if God was asking him to surrender something painful, something as horrific as losing his only son, there must be an even more abundant blessing on the other side. I'm not sure I would have the faith to walk up that mountain, but because Abraham obeyed, we now get to witness, through Scripture, the first example of substitutionary sacrifice as God provides a ram in the thicket. Do you know who else walked up a mountain that led directly to an inconceivable sacrifice? Jesus. Only when Jesus walked to Calvary, when the Roman guard slammed hammer into steel through flesh, there was no ram in the thicket. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, became God's autobiography on earth. And God's nature is not punitive, it is sacrificial. Jesus willingly obeyed the Father to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And because of His supernatural, unexplainable, indescribable obedience— We now have peace with God. Thanks be to God for obedience and the peace that comes with it. Things that we may not be able to understand, but we can only pray to have strength and faith to emulate. Let's continue looking at God's test of Abraham through the lens of a comparison to Jesus as we listen to the Sacrificial Son devotional from the Jesus Bible. Without question, this story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the most shocking and memorable narratives in all of Scripture. And yet in its outcome, it is one of the greatest stories describing the loyalty of God to His covenant and the foreshadowing of His plan to save the world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God made a promise to destroy evil and redeem humanity through the offspring of the woman. In this story, God puts Abraham's faithfulness to the test by asking him to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Abraham had another son, Ishmael. But Isaac was the only son in which all of God's promises resided because he was born of Sarah. Isaac represented the continuation of God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's descendants, and the ultimate promise to destroy evil in the world, as found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Everything about Isaac's life was a result of God's supernatural plan and provision. Against all odds, Sarah, Abraham's wife, became pregnant with Isaac despite being 90 years old. And now, in spite of all that Isaac represented, God asked Abraham to surrender his beloved son. The toll of this command on Abraham and Sarah must have been enormous. What a powerful picture of what God did to his only son for us. Little is said of Abraham's thoughts or the thoughts of the boy's mother. All we read is the account of the father's complete obedience to God's command. Abraham laid the wood for the offering on his son's back, and Isaac carried it to the altar. Isaac was confused. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Then Abraham offers a glimpse of his faith in God's provision by saying, God himself will provide the land. Abraham understood, like the Apostle Paul after him, that God must keep his promises in order to uphold his own righteousness. The sacrifice of Jesus not only fulfilled God's promise to destroy evil 
and save the world, but it also proved God's righteousness by providing a punishment for the sin of the whole world. Just as God provided Jesus himself to demonstrate his righteousness and take on the punishment we deserved, so also he provided the ram himself to uphold his promise by keeping Isaac alive. Now also consider this from the Jesus Bible titled Confidence in God. Abraham's confidence in light of his impending task testifies to a deeper confidence. His profound confidence in God. Not only had God asked him to do this startling task, but Abraham was certain that God would provide a means of deliverance. He told his servants to wait while he and his son Isaac went to worship God on the mountain. Knowing that God commanded him to sacrifice his son, Abraham told the servants that he and the boy would come back soon. We will worship and then we will come back to you, he said. He knew that God had promised to create a great nation through Isaac. For this reason, Abraham knew that God would either deliver Isaac from death or resurrect him following his death. Either way, God would keep his word. Jesus also trusted God in the face of impending death. The ultimate son of the promise, Jesus asked that God would take away the cup of his suffering. Yet Jesus knew that God would be faithful, either by providing deliverance from death or through his subsequent victorious resurrection. Unlike Isaac, Jesus would willingly and confidently walk not only to the brink of death, but through death itself, and once again demonstrate the faithfulness of God to his promises. Wow, I don't know about all of you, but I know I was so intrigued to learn of the comparisons of Abraham's test of faith by God and Isaac's compliance, along with Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for each one of us. So amazing to consider. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to stop right here from reading another long listing of hard-to-pronounce names in the lineage of Abraham's brother Nahor. I'm also going to have you go read chapter 23 about the death and burial of Sarah on your own. However, I will provide a few details I came across in my research of chapter 23 before we move on. In chapter 23, after living a long and faithful life, Sarah dies when she was 127 years old, and Abraham negotiates a burial spot for her. 37 years after Isaac was born. 37 years of parenting Isaac alongside Abraham. Surely Abraham and Isaac grieved her loss deeply. Their lives would be changed forever. No longer would Sarah prepare meals or engage in conversations with them. Yet her legacy and story continues through the pages of Scripture. Her legacy is so profound that God made sure her story was recorded. In fact, more is told of her life than most other women in the Bible. Case in point, All of chapter 23 is about her death and burial. The reason this is a big deal is because here we have Abraham buying a plot of land in Canaan, the very land God promised him, but the land that is currently inhabited by his enemies. Amazing. Just amazing, right? How God ties threads upon threads together in his story. Okay, let's continue our studies with Genesis 24. Once again, in the interest of time, I'm also going to have you go read chapter 24 for yourself. Please, please, please press pause right now to read or listen so all of the study resources I'm going to share next will make sense. Let's pick back up with Beth Moore in Genesis chapter 24 of her patriarch study. In day one, week four of the section titled, A Jar on Her Shoulder, she says, Today we get to bask at the beginning of a peculiar love story that will build Isaac as our leading man in this next stage of our drama. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of beginnings, 67 verses. In Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, we read of Abraham's concern. He does not want Isaac to marry one of the Canaanite women. After asking his servant to go secure a wife for Isaac, be sure to note the sign that the servant requested from God in Genesis chapter 24, verses 12 through 14. 
he asks for a woman who offers not only a drink to him, but also a drink for the camels. This was no small request, mind you. Each camel could drink 25 gallons of water. The servant requested something highly unlikely as a sign from God. And according to Genesis chapter 24, verse 15, Rebecca appeared in the scene in answer of the servant's prayer before he finished praying even. Oh, for the words before he had finished praying to apply to some of our own requests. Could any of us ask for more wonderful timing? Beloved, God hears the prayers of his children. Please note something very important. In the scene at the spring between Abraham's servant and Rebecca, not only did the answer come, but the action fulfilling the answer also came. I believe far more often than not, God answers our prayers immediately, though we may not see the fulfillment with our own eyes until much later. We sometimes ask God, why don't you answer me? Often he has answered, but the fulfillment is still on his items yet to be completed according to his sovereign and wise plan list. If we could only find peace and security in knowing that God is good for his word, though the action may tarry, it shall come. Now let's take another glance at Genesis 24. Abraham's servant assumed Rebekah was the one for Isaac because she did exactly what he prayed the one for Isaac would do. Imagine the servant's joy. Don't you know he could hardly believe his eyes? Try to remember the last time you felt you'd come face to face with answered prayer. What a glorious spiritual high. The servant's eyes beheld God's answer. She was the one. Moving on to week four, day three, in a section titled, He Loved Her, Beth shares, I so wish we could watch today's scenes on video together. I personally pop the corn and pour the Coke, but you'd have to keep the remote control or I'd push pause every few seconds for discussion. The narratives in God's word are as rich and captivating as any great novel. The authenticity of these stories makes them all the better and proves, at least to me, that God himself is a romantic. Abraham's servant presented the family with a lavish dowry. A celebratory dinner took place and all turned in for the night. Can you imagine Rebecca getting a wink of sleep? She knew nothing about the man she would marry except that he came from the same stock, as my grandmother might say. The custom of marrying someone sight unseen has been practiced widely. Still, I can hardly imagine it. I fear my mind would have been inundated with what-ifs. How about you? What what-ifs would you have in Rebecca's position? Maybe, what does he look like? His personality? Will I get along with him and his family? Well, the questions list could go on and on here, am I right? Now let's read the remainder of Genesis chapter 24, verses 61 through 66. Surely you see some romance in these passages. What is your favorite part? Maybe her riding into the unknown with Abraham's servant? Or them seeing each other for the first time? Keep in mind that Rebecca, her nurse, the old servant, and his men traveled quite a distance to reach Abraham's homestead. Surely they'd seen other people on their journey. These roads were well-established and frequented, as long-distance travelers stayed close to the rivers. Even though Rebecca's entourage met any number of people along the way, I believe Scripture strongly suggests that we might call love at first sight as they approached the field where Isaac stood. If you don't like romance, you might consider stopping right here. On the other hand, reading on might do you some good. Let's not grow cynical. God is the author of pure romance. Let's enjoy the story and perhaps even invite God to change our own. If we have to already possess something to enjoy reading about it, how do we know what to hope for? Hope pertains not only to this world, but to heaven, where you will no doubt have the perfect groom. But let's get back to our story. Maybe Rebecca's heart leapt suddenly as she looked in the distance, feeling somehow that the approaching stranger might be Isaac. What was Isaac doing as he looked up and saw the camels approaching? Verse 63 says that he was walking and meditating in the fields. 
The word meditate could simply mean thinking or even roaming about, but it could also be a form of the verb that means praying. And what did Rebecca do when she learned the man in the distance was Isaac? Verse 65 says she covered her face with her veil. If you don't already know, you'll be blessed to learn the common custom of veiling a bride originates right here in Genesis chapter 24, verse 65. I learned this when I researched wedding customs. My heart tenders as I read with you that when Rebecca saw Isaac, she took her veil and covered herself. The concluding verses in chapter 24 grant us another characteristic of the first wedding we get to witness in God's chosen line. Isaac loved her. The Hebrew word is strong, teeming with joy, protection, and demonstrative affection. Ideally, in our opinions, Isaac would have chosen his own bride, but remember that Abraham insisted, If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. In verse 8. Abraham did not want Isaac, the child of promise, enticed by the old Mesopotamian culture. With that in mind, I see a number of precedents set here by Isaac and Rebekah's example. The ideal of parental blessing, prayer and the leadership of God, mutual consent, a draw of hearts toward one another, and a growing love that outlasts the romance of first sight. Let's draw this chapter to a close, but before we do, I hope you took some moments to consider the humanness of what is happening in these verses about the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. So tender that our God believed it was important enough that he chose to include such details of the romance, love, and comfort already found in their new relationship as husband and wife. I, like Beth, love love too. So beautiful. Okay, friends, let's bring this episode to a close by moving into our time of prayer. As in the last episode, I continue to hear multiple worship songs in various places that have become the prayers of my heart recently. In this episode, I would like to share the lyrics from the song In the Name of Jesus, God of Possible by Katie Nicole as our prayer together. Please join me as we pray. I speak the name of Jesus over you. In your hurting, in your sorrow, I will ask my God to move. I speak the name because it's all that I can do. In desperation, I'll seek heaven and pray this for you. I pray for your healing, that circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I speak the name of all authority, declaring blessings, every promise he is faithful to keep. I speak the name no grave could ever hold. He is greater. He is stronger. He is the God of possible. Come believe it. Come receive it. Oh, the power of His Spirit is now and forever yours. Come believe it, come receive it. In the mighty name of Jesus, all things are possible. I pray for your healing, that circumstances will change. I pray that the fear inside will flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name. I pray for revival, for restoration of faith. I pray that the dead will come alive in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now please be sure to take time to go listen to the link I placed in the show notes for this song. I personally love the perspective of discussing our God of the impossible earlier in this episode, as compared to the lyrics in this song of praying to the God of the possible. Just beautiful to consider He is both, right? Honestly, I find that songs seem to stick in my head, so listening to worship songs that become the prayers on repeat in my heart and mind is just one more way to fit prayer times in throughout my day. You know, while eating lunch, folding laundry, washing dishes, making dinner, driving, going on a walk. Well, you get the idea, right? 
So, so good, friends. Okay, OOBTers, please remember that this show releases every other Wednesday wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Up next, we're going to once again pause our studies in the book of Genesis, this time to take a closer look at the most wonderful time of the year, the time of celebrating Thanksgiving, followed by the Advent season that leads up to Christmas. Often referred to as Thankmas, they are truly the most wonderful times of the year, in my opinion, friends. We will spend the next few episodes discussing thankfulness, gratitude, Emmanuel, God with us, waiting, God as a promise keeper, and so much more. You definitely don't want to miss out on even one of these episodes, my friend. I know these holiday seasons are so, so busy, but it is also important that we don't allow these holidays to sneak up on us without stealing away to find time to prepare our hearts for what it truly means that our Savior was born on Christmas Day. I can't wait. Now, if you're ever listening to an episode and think, whoa, Em, slow down, I have great news for you. You are in control of how fast I talk. Plus, there may be a good chance that you may have accidentally hit the button on your podcast app that speeds up my voice. Oops. (laughs) So be sure to check that out first. But as I mentioned, if I'm talking at 1x and that's still too fast for you, you can definitely slow me down. Most podcast apps offer a variety of speeds, faster or slower. For instance, in Apple Podcasts, you can adjust the speed by clicking the episode and then clicking the 1x in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. If you keep clicking that number, it will read one and a quarter, one and a half, two, and half x speed even. If you don't know how to adjust the speed on the app you listen to podcasts in, just do a web search for how to adjust the speed of the podcast on whichever one you use. Hopefully this helps. <laughs> this is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. 